Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realize there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Lovely neighborhood. This episode has been a long time coming with a guest I've admired for many years now. We have one of those relationships that's so unique to our modern digital lives where we haven't actually met in person yet somehow, but have followed each other's work and lives for some time, have many mutual friends and had just so much to talk about this first time we sat down for a proper conversation. As you'll hear, that means I strayed all over the place from my usual structured thinking. I just had so many questions on so many topics. And once you learn a bit more about Tarang Chola, you'll understand why he's an expert on so many different things. Tarang is not only a fellow former lawyer, but is also, wait for this list, an author, a keynote speaker, an anti-violence campaigner, a gender equality and mental health advocate, former independent political candidate, and even a commissioner at the Victorian Multicultural Commission. And that is only reading half his bio. So it really was impossible to feel like I did anything more than scratch the surface and I suspect that this won't be our only chat on the show. Just a little content warning, we also cover one of the catalysts for Tarang's incredible work and activism being the tragic murder of his younger sister Nikki at the age of 23 by her then-husband, as well as the impact of this on his own mental health and we briefly touch on suicide. So please do take care while listening and I've included in the show notes a list of resources and helplines should anyone listening need to reach out at any time. Please don't hesitate. How Tarang has come through this absolutely unimaginable tragedy and dedicated himself to Nikki's legacy with his anti-violence campaigning and activism is nothing short of inspiring and actually opens up a much more layered and complex conversation about joy in life and the concept of yay than is usually the case on this show, which was definitely something a bit different. And I do hope it lands in the ears of anyone out there who might need to hear it. I'm so grateful for his time, his vulnerability and his energy, and I hope you guys find this as moving as I did. Tarang, welcome to CCA. Thanks for having me, Sarah. I know we've talked about this for a while, so it's really good to be on the show. Oh my gosh, it's been a long time coming, all my fault, and you have been so patient and so gracious, but the day is finally here. I know, let's chat, let's talk. Let's chat. <laughs> so I do this thing all the time where I get way too far into the research about your life and then I have too many dot points and I already know I'm not going to get to all of them, but oh my God, where do I begin? So there are so many multi-hyphenates out there like us, you know, in this day and age, but not many of them have as many slashes in their title as you do. You are a commissioner, an author, a speaker, a lawyer, an activist, a political candidate even, but also sartorial genius. That's very kind. (laughs) Very kind. I mean, I follow your activism, but I also follow your Oscars content. So, I mean, what can't you do? (laughs) I look at you the same way. I look at so many of your guests the same way. I think that maybe it's a generational thing. We're all just trying to find what fits. 
Like we don't have that, that like our parents' generation had where you go get a job, you work somewhere for 25 years or 35 years, whatever, and they give you, when you retire, they give you the Rolex watch with like your, <laughs> your thank you for your service on the back, right? And then there you are. like. Which I think is, it's the beauty, I think, of living in this day and age is you never have to settle for the one pathway. You can kind of be satisfying all of the sides of your personality at once. But it also is kind of like whenever anyone mentions long service leave, I'm like, yeah, what? What, yeah. what is that? What, yeah. do you, what do you mean? Yeah. I'm like, you were at one place <laughs> for 10 years? Like, I can't commit to outfit choices for, you know, 10 months, <laughs> let alone 10 years. I can't commit to anything for that amount of time, right? Other than maybe people, right? People are the only thing that are like a constant where I'm like pretty loyal. But other than that, it's like. <laughs> it's the Rolex watch, you know, they dangle that at the end yeah. and you think, oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> yeah. And this is probably so off topic for some of you listeners, but I'm like, a, a bit of a watch fiend and like my friends and I having conversations about that very thing it's weird that I brought that up because it must be in my subconscious because yeah that's actually in my notes because of your watch content from the Oscars oh really well it's very hard to get one these days like there's a there's a whole waiting list situation oh yeah it's like the Birkin handbag I was about to say it is like the masculine equivalent of Hermes Kelly or whatever the, the Birkin like it is that's the one right that's yeah the handbag. oh my god you've done so well my handbag knowledge is, is chopped no I can't believe you knew what a Kelly was Oh, thank you. I was reading up before. I was reading before. No, but I think I think it, it's the same thing, right? Where it's like buy 50 things you don't want and then we'll put you on a list to get you the one thing that you do want. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I think we've kind of already answered the first question about, which you may know, is what the most down-to-earth thing is about you. And I think it would be really easy to put you on a pedestal, and I do it myself, because you are such an eloquent and articulate speaker on topics that are big and heavy and serious and you you know you're so well read and such an intellect that you know she's got range she's got range oh, that's very kind but that's a misconception <laughs> i'm not as well read as people think really i'm really not people think i've read a lot and i think it's because i developed i got glasses when i was like 12 <laughs> Is that the key to the perception? <laughs> yeah, I got glasses when I was 12 and I also developed facial hair quite early. And I think the combination of having a beard at 13 and wearing philosopher-like glasses and sitting there in class going like this. <laughs> it's the beard stroke for sure. Yeah, not because you're well-read but because you have undiagnosed ADHD and are actually just bored. Oh, you're just giving the air of intellect. <laughs> it's amazing. People think you're smart and you know what? There's an old like proverb where it's like better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? And I'm like testing that theory. I'm like, I'm going to open my mouth as many times as possible and see when I eventually say something ridiculous. And so far, people have been very gracious to me in that they actually listen to what I have to say. So I'm very, <laughs> I'm very lucky. Well, that in itself is pretty much a testament to the quality of what you have to say, because you don't grow the audience and the platform that you have now without saying really meaningful things about, you know, meaningful topics, which you do so well. And that's kind of already brought up the first question of the show, which is really, the idea that you have such an important voice in the Australian landscape on so many important issues like domestic violence, street harassment, 
men's mental health, women's mental health, the experience of racism. And, you know, it's it's easy to assume that you knew you wanted to end up here or the pathway to get here was smooth and the places that you get a lot of airtime are on these issues and not necessarily on your pathway or what it took to kind of shape that journey for you, which is what I love to talk about on this show. Like when you Google you, for example, there's so much from the last couple of years, from your activism, there are articles that have been written, there are campaigns that you've been working on, there's so much about the now. And for someone who's earlier on in their journey, who are going through experiences that you went through earlier in your life, it's often quite reassuring to hear more about how you actually got there, what were all the pivotal moments and what you went through to actually shape the life that you have today. So can you take us back to the very beginnings and, and trace through all those chapters that helped form the Tarang we know today. Yeah, wow. I mean, where do I – it's strange, like, when I think about that, you know, with all of these conversations happening around, like, the Indigenous voice to parliament, and I've been seeing a whole bunch of people from First Nations communities talking about it, when they get on stages and stuff, they don't start by talking about themselves. They start talking about, like, their mob and where they come from, and mm. their story always starts somewhere. And so for me, it doesn't really start with me. It starts with, like, my grandparents who were in what is modern-day – Pakistan, Pakistan, right? I read right? that. Yeah, and then they migrated south during like the British occupation of the region. And I think about my life here in Melbourne where we got a notice from the council that next week there's like eight hours of like a planned power interruption and there won't be internet and stuff. And I was like, oh, man, like <laughs> can, I, can I swear? Yeah, can I for swear? sure. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, fuck, like man, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to live for eight hours without internet? <laughs> and here's like, here are my grandparents who literally during like wartime are fleeing as displaced peoples, right? Akin to refugees. And I'm like, man, a day without internet, that's going to be rough. And I'm forward planning that I'm not going to be home all day. And I'm like, might just go to Chadston. Might just go for a day of shopping. <laughs> there's air con there. There's temperature yeah, it's control. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> High-speed Wi-Fi, like, yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah, I aspire to be one of the pensioners groups who go on a Wednesday and have coffee at like a, mu- a muffin break and then and then go, you know, you see them at like Chadston and like all the Westfields around, around town. But so it sort of starts there. My story sort of starts there and then, I was born just outside of, of Delhi, New Delhi in India. And I mean, my parents, right, like they they met through an arranged marriage. They had like this whole thing. Like my mum, a lot of people misunderstand arranged marriages. but mm. We actually have a few friends who had arranged marriages. And the more you learn about them, the more actually often they last, they last longer. They're based on, I think, different foundations to what, what people assume. Yeah, it's n- normally not like... It's not, it's not forced marriage, right? People think of it as forced marriage sometimes. Mm. And it still occurs across different parts of the world. But essentially, it was like a facilitated introduction for my parents. But the way that it happened is like my dad put an ad in the Times of India newspaper, oh my God. Right? the broadsheet. And he like went into Connaught Place in the center of Delhi and he put an ad in. And it was just like, you know, five foot nine engineer from xyz family seeks you know life partner whatever i don't know whatever he put and then my mum's dad right my late grandfather he saw it and it said that my dad's family were from the same part of like old pakistan that my mum's family was from. oh no way and they were like well we should go meet them at least and so and so they did like they met and my mum had met like a few men and 
you know, none of them really took her fancy. And I even think with my dad, she was just like, I don't know. Like I'm a, <laughs> like I'm a 20, she was like 24 or something, 23, and she was like, I'm a young woman. And I think this is a misconception people have about women in other countries. It's like in Australia we often look at other countries and go, oh, they're so backwards and stuff. And there's aspects of that, of course, right, uh, and, and really woeful statistics around some of the, the women's safety stuff. But there's also like a lot of progressive people, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and modern-day India is an example of that, right, where you've got a population of 1.4 billion, right, and hundreds and hundreds of millions on the cusp of being like just that generation of new India and they're educated and they're cosmopolitan and they travel the world and they're progressively minded. And it's like my mum was sort of like, you know, part of that a generation ago. And so she kind of met my dad and, and my dad was like, he was so career-oriented and a very quiet man. And I think he asked my mum what she knew about marine engineering, which is what my dad was. He used to work on ships for the Merchant Navy. And my mum was like, I don't know anything about it and I don't really care. <laughs> and my dad was like, okay, like, great. Shut and, down. <laughs> and then my mum asked him, how were women treated in your family? Which I think is an amazing question that, like, a lot of people should ask if they're contemplating marriage and long-term relationships. It's like, how are the other women treated around mm. you, right? Because mm. it's so. and my dad's answer was normal, I guess. Like, he'd never really thought about it. And so when she probed him on what normal meant, he gave her an answer that she liked, right? And they went on some dates and stuff and then met in, like, September of one year and then they got married in November of that year and they had a like a three-day-long Indian wedding. I love Indian weddings. Yeah, and North Indian weddings in particular, they go for days at a time. So my mum still has her like langa, it's called, her wedding langa, and it's this beautiful silk number that weighs I think like seven or eight kilos, <laughs> maybe oh more. Oh, my gosh. And it's all like made by hand and, I mean, you could put a price on it, but in my family, it's just priceless, mm. right? So, yeah, she's still got it and it's just stunning. And, uh, yeah, they met and then I was, I mean, I was born and then we grew up, I was born in India and then at 18 months we migrated to Australia. I heard to Port Lincoln, which is like raging. What a raging spot to move to <laughs> at one year old. I feel really <laughs> honoured that you've gone and read this or researched. Oh, like, 100%. I, it's, it's kind of, it feels surreal because I admire and respect you so much that someone else knows Aww. this about me. It's like, but yeah, Port Lincoln, raging. I mean, I was a child, so I had no, like, like a baby, an infant, so I have no memory of it. I don't remember anything about it. But I think my mum, going from like the hustle and bustle of Delhi, and my mum in particular, she grew up in South Delhi, which is very posh, and think like South Yarra turned up a lot. Turned up, yeah. Right? That's where she kind of grew up. So she kind of, she went from that to Port Lincoln and was just like, what have I done? Like <laughs> I, I have an infant with asthma. I've got uh, a husband who is a man I barely know and have a child to, really, because they hadn't, you know, they hadn't been together 10 years, then they get a house, Mm. they get engaged. It's not that story, right? It's like Mm. literally two years ago I met this man and now we are on the other side of the world, pre-internet, pre-everything, 
the only way to contact India was $5.50 a minute phone calls. Oh, my God, we've come such a long way. <laughs> From like the landline connected to the wall by cable. Oh, my gosh. Or letters, right, like handwritten letters, which took like two weeks, right, to get there because there's no express post or anything. So it was like I really think about my mum and, and my dad and both of them and I think about myself and I think about all the people I know in relationships and I'm like, Man, that's some resilience, right? That's like some real ride or die shit. Like mm. you are committing to each other. So they were committed to each other and they raised uh, me in that environment. But we didn't stay in Port Lincoln for long. I think we stayed there weeks, if not months at most. And then we settled in Melbourne after a while. And uh, yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne. We moved around a little bit from like, you know, one bedroom flat to another until my parents bought a home. And then shortly after, my little sister Nikki was born. And I wouldn't have known, if not for the benefit of hindsight and as you experience the world growing up, that we didn't have a lot of money, that we lived in the absolute like outer, outer suburbs. Like I, I had no concept because as a kid, you don't really know any of this stuff, right? Your world mm -hmm. is just your immediate kind of zone around you. I remember seeing people with substance misuse issues. I remember seeing like the effects of alcohol and other drugs around the community of violence and other things, but not really knowing that as being anything abnormal. Um, the experience of like overt discrimination and violent discrimination, like, you know, getting beaten up, getting black eyes, going to the school nurse's office and then being sent home because I was injured physically. That was like common, right? That happened often enough that I still remember it. But there wasn't, it wasn't all bad, right? It wasn't all mm. negative. And I think some people mm. don't get that about like issues like racism or any kind of discrimination, that it's not like a constant thing that's happening all the time. There's like peaks and flows of it, right? So there's like an incident and then you that becomes part of your psyche and the trauma stays with you in different ways. And so it was like a, a childhood that was marred by all of these incidents where like I stopped playing footy because of getting beaten up on the football field, right? And after the third time it happened, I remember going to the tribunal because the other kid got like charged <gasps> with like punching me because the umpire saw it and then he, you know, he got let off like and he didn't get in trouble for it. And I remember my coach driving me home and I have this vivid recollection of that day where he drove me home from the tribunal and the other kid didn't get any like didn't get in trouble for it. And when we got home, my mum pulled me out of footy and all I remember is not the injustice of that day because I was too young to understand all that mm, stuff, but mm. I just remember being fascinated by this guy. He drove this Holden Commodore and I just remember being fascinated by his sports steering wheel. I love that that's your memory. Yeah. <laughs> like that, I was just a kid. That was my memory of it. I was like, man. And even now, <laughs> even now I'm like, man, I want that. I drive Volkswagen Golf and I'm like, I want that steering wheel. I want to get that like sports steering wheel in my car. <laughs> that's the like defining memory yeah. of that whole experience is not the racism or the court, but like, yeah, the car, yeah. obviously. I mean, the court process was intense because I'd never seen anything like it, right, at that age. And it's so formal and I wore a little suit and stuff. And uh, Oh my God, yeah. that's really cute. Yeah, it was cute. It was in like, a horrible context, but very cute. <laughs> yeah, I wore a little suit and stuff. But then after that, my mum pulled me out because she was just like, you can't, like, you send your kid off to do extracurricular activity or go to school or wherever and be safe and have fun. And it was all about teamwork and a bit of health and fitness and, like, getting involved, you know, and I really loved footy. And for years I just turned off the sport altogether because I just had such negative experiences. And now when I see players of colour, you know, making it into the AFL 
when I see them like speaking out about elements of racism and then I see positive responses from clubs, I'm like, that's all we want is just positive interaction. This isn't about like saying everyone is horrible or bad or making a bigger deal than we need to about things that have happened in the past, but about how we go forward to make things more positive for everyone. So yeah, like my childhood was one of those things where there was a lot of a lot of experiences of discrimination, but so many positives. We wouldn't have known, Nikki and I, that money was tight, even though my parents were working multiple jobs and we were in childcare a lot and kind of not seeing dad as much as we wanted to at times. Mm. But we didn't feel that absence because the love that we had when they were there was was really present. Mm. And and as a sister, Nikki was amazing. She was like the most loving person. And as some of your listeners might know, she was killed when she was 23. And so I didn't get to have her in my life for as long as, you know, most people get to have their siblings in their life. But we got lifetimes of love in her 23 years of, of life. So I feel really fortunate. And I'm just remembering back, I listened to your episode with Alyssa Healy, the, who captained oh, the, yeah, the women's cricket yeah. team in Mumbai a few months ago. And you asked me about like some of my, you know, some of my work and and that people don't start where they where people notice them. And she talked about how it uh, and what resonated with me is that she talked about how people think it just happened overnight and she was talking about the journey that it took for her breaking down every barrier as a woman in sport. And what resonated with me is, and it's there's that old saying where it's like it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and I talk about this with like with others that are in similar spaces where people will notice them, you know, and I know one of our, our mutual friends in Maria Thetil, 2020's Miss Universe Australia and just all-round legend. And, you know, we've talked about that, her and I, and she's uh, also been on this great L'Oreal campaign that I've been working on. And we've talked about that where she's been, you know, chipping away, doing such important work. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, my God, you came out yeah. of nowhere. And it's like. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you propelled onto the scene. Yeah, and it's like, no, I've been here. And I think that happens a lot with women of colour, right? Yeah. Where, like, all of a sudden it's just like, whoa, you're here out of nowhere. It's like, no, I've been doing amazing things, right, mm. For, and just chipping mm. away. Yeah, I think about this all the time. And I think it's also it's not just women of colour as well who experience this. It's anyone really who becomes a voice or a spokesperson for a topic that traditionally hasn't been as commonly spoke about and that, you know, it hasn't always had the same audience that it has right now. And I never explain this right, but I, what I mean is kind of, you know, things aren't trendy until they're trendy. And just because you started talking about it 10 years ago, it doesn't mean that you had the audience and the platform who were willing to listen 10 years ago. But now it seems like you've just, you know, propelled onto the scene. But really you started, as you said, chipping away bit by bit a long time ago and it's taken you a long time to get there. It never happens overnight. And Maria and I have spoken about this too as well, that, you know, she's been campaigning for a bigger presence and more representation for women of colour since well before people were actually ready to action that and before it was more commonly accepted and before platforms would give her space and airtime to talk about that stuff. But to many people it appears like, oh, she's just come out of nowhere. But no, she's actually been working on it for such a long time. And I think that's why I, I really like tracing back through all the chapters that you had to go through, what you were thinking, what your mindset was like at that time. Like, you know, we have more than a few things in common. You went to Melbourne High 
Mackay, I went to McRob, you did arts law, I did arts law. And I think, you know, even that itself is sort of like that was a whole chapter when you had no idea that yeah. you were going to end up where you are. Did you go to McRob? That I didn't know. I know you. I really? Knew you. Yeah, I didn't know that you were at McRob. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, I should Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was like, that's my brother. Like, yeah. we, we, we've done the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Melbourne High boys need to, well, my generation of Melbourne High boys needed to be kinder to McCrock girls. Like, we, <laughs> we're not. Like, we just said horrible things about them just because. Yeah. And, and they did nothing to warrant it. Like, it wasn't friendly banter and teasing. It was just, like, unkind you know, <laughs> vibes just being projected out for no particular reason. I mean, yeah, that, I, I feel like there's a bit of healthy rivalry there and <laughs> Melbourne High guys have not always been nice to, to McRub girls, but also McRub girls, I mean, we had our noses in books. We weren't always looking at boys. I mean, I I obviously, had, <laughs> I was very distracted in school by Melbourne High boys, but not everyone was, you know? I mean, I have fond memories of my time, my time then, right? Like, so I was on the SRC at Melbourne High School and that was like my way of being involved in things because it was such a an ac- strongly academic environment and I felt really – so I've been grappling with this concept of imposter syndrome a lot, right? And perhaps a controversial take is that I'm starting to think not as many people have imposter syndrome as maybe they do, right, but they have like a degree of self-awareness that like what their strengths and limitations are. And so for me, my strengths and limitations were understanding that in Melbourne High, like I didn't necessarily belong academically. Like I didn't do as well as a lot of the others, right? They were like, I was surrounded by some just absolute, you know, incredible minds. And I remember like looking at people that I, like my peers, right? Same age and everything and just being like, fuck, you're so smart, man. Like, how are you, <laughs> How does your brain do that? And I just remember going, my brain doesn't do that. So I just gravitated towards the things that I liked, which was like Darude Sandstorm. Oh, what an era. Uh, and organising oh. high, high school social. So I just did that. That was like, that was my contribution to the school, was just get on the SRC and organise parties and events. And so I have like fond memories of that. Like one year, uh, did you ever go to a, a, like a social at the Memorial Hall? Did I go to a social at the Memorial Hall? I tore up the Memorial Hall dance floor. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> That's so good. That's when so were good. you there? I was there 2001 to 2004. Oh, so maybe some crossover. Yeah, 03. Yeah. And 04, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there's some crossover. There's yeah. some crossover. So you were at the junior socials when I was at the senior socials. Or I was like hijacking the senior socials because I was were like you getting older men, 100%. Oh, wow, yeah. Okay, there you go. There you go. One year just before you started, so 2002, the power went out at the uh, junior social at Memorial Hall and I was in year 10 and I remember the only thing that worked, so basically there was a band playing, right, and the power went out because <laughs> the amp like short-circuited or something and then you've got a whole bunch of teenagers in a room in the dark and nothing works except for, <laughs> except for two, mi- two microphones and so it's like chaos. And then me and a friend got up on the mic and I beatboxed and he freestyle rapped and they were like, you can beatbox? No, I can't anymore, but I used to try oh. as a kid. <laughs> okay, amazing. And it was literally 
I would have been like 15, but it was honestly the best day of my life. And I've been chasing that high ever since for just decades. Like that is- You peaked too early. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was my Everest. I peaked at 15 when, <laughs> when I grabbed the microphone and beatboxed for five minutes until the power went back on. And there was no music, right, for a good 30 seconds, which is an eternity when you're a 15-year-old and, like, all your hormones are going on. You've probably been engaging in, like, pre's and your parents don't know how much you've actually been drinking. Pre's. Oh, my God. Yeah, remember those? Like, pre's. Yeah. I, re- I don't even remember going out, basically. I mean, like, <laughs> who remembers that? <laughs> we're both in Melbourne, so we were locked down for a good two years. So I think it's, yeah. it's fair. we've got some we, catching up. We don't, well, we don't remember that. But... Yeah, that was like my time at Melbourne High. It was just this strange thing of like trying to find ways to fit in and trying to find ways to understand where my sense of what being a man meant, my own sense of masculinity, my own earlier experiences of racism, which didn't continue, thankfully, in the same way at Melbourne High because there was such cultural diversity. I don't know if you found that at McRobb because of such cultural diversity that like all of a sudden when your ethnic group becomes part of the majority visibly, the script flips a little bit, but it's it's really interesting. Like a lot of the environment that I grew up in around those spaces is what like, and the conversations that we have now, I'm very conscious of like any conversations about discrimination, particularly from people in our sort of broad age bracket, of being grounded in a context of we probably said and did this stuff 10, 15 years ago, but we know better now. Because this idea that all my friends, like people my age, calling them friends, right, have the, like, we've never said or done anything bad is so dishonest, right? Like, I grew up listening to Dr. Dre. Like, I've had a misogynistic thought in my life. Like, who am I to pretend? (laughs) A misogynistic thought, (laughs) singular. (laughs) Plural, many, many. You get what I mean, right? You get what I mean. Where it's like, of course you have. Like, and the sign of growth and progress isn't being like, I've never had it. It's being like, I've learned X, Y, Z, and therefore... I'm going to do something about it. And then I'm going to do something so that other people understand it as well. Not because I'm better or anyone's better, but because we're all collectively better as a result. You know, we're all safer, more inclusive, more, you know, understanding, whatever the case is. That kind of touches back on what I was articulate, well, trying to say and not articulating very well before. And oh my God, I also realize I have not been following a structure whatsoever in this episode because I'm just, there's so much to talk about and I'm so fascinated by it all. But, you know, coming back to that idea that you have really been speaking about these topics for so long and in such a way that you've learned and progressed and got it wrong and stumbled. And then you do help other people to be able to feel comfortable to enter this space and start speaking, even if they might make a mistake or say the wrong thing. And I think sometimes people are so scared to say the wrong thing and and get cancelled that often they just refrain from discourse at all. And and I think you do really well at encouraging people that it's better to try and maybe get it wrong and then learn than to not speak about these things at all. But you also had to start somewhere. And I think, again, people underestimate you don't just get handed a L'Oreal ambassadorship for an anti-harassment campaign the day you decide to be an activist. You've been chipping away, as you say. And, you know, I think it's it's coming back to that whole pathway thing and all the steps that it took to, to get here. You've been speaking about these important issues, particularly domestic violence, since 2015. And so I, I know we 
I don't want to labor uh, this chapter of your life too much, but as much as you are comfortable speaking about, you know, can you take us through how it all happened, how, how things changed for you and how you did start speaking about things like domestic violence? You turned a, a huge and unimaginable trauma in your life into something so positive. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the trauma, right, is like my sister's murder in 2015. It changed a lot, right? Like, and it's so hard to articulate in a way that I want it to make sense to everyone, but sometimes it doesn't even make sense to me. So how can I make sense of it? And the reason I say that it doesn't make sense to me is like we're biological siblings. So we by default share 50% of the same DNA, right? So a part, like I genuinely felt, and this sounds hippie and whatever, but I felt like a part of me died, right? With my sister, right? But as I learned over time through different forms of advocacy, it's that talking about my sister giving life to her in death as well as countless others was my own way of healing and it's my mm. own way of recovery. And I've very recently actually just been speaking at and hosting this conference for the National Trauma and Recovery Conference related to domestic family and sexual violence. And it sort of dawned on me literally while I was on stage that that's what a lot of this is, that this is actually my own form of healing and recovery and trauma. And it was like giving meaning to what my family's experienced, what Nikki went through. But initially it didn't start there. In 2015, it actually was born out of a, a sense of injustice and a sense of anger, and particularly the way that Nikki's death was reported on, the way that it was handled in the courts, particularly initially. Uh, and the vindication that we got as a family was that the judge who was responsible for sentencing the man who killed my sister said in his comments that nothing Nikita Chola did in any way whatsoever contributed to what you chose to do to her. And I felt vindicated by that because... Mm. We live in a society that often blames victims, particularly women, but all victims for what happens to them, right? It's like, what were they wearing? Or why were they out late at night? Or all of these things, right? Even if it's just like behaviors like catcalling, right? Which is obviously very, very different to like taking a weapon and physically harming mm. someone, right? But still mm. has an impact on the person who is subjected to it. So it was born out of this sense of injustice and anger initially that I was like, hang on a minute. I want to course correct the record. And I think it's because of the stuff we talked about earlier that my, I come from this, you know, ancestry of my grandparents being who they are and, you know, migrating across borders as refugees and my parents coming and starting again and raising Nikki and I with not much but finding a way to get through and making sure that we had love around us at all times that I was just like, well, I don't really know how the Australian media works. I don't really know how powerful these institutions are, but I'm just going to start saying what I think. And sometimes when people come to me now and they're like, how can I become an advocate? I sometimes have to give them the, well, I always give them honest advice, but sometimes I have to give them the difficult reality of the honest advice, which is not everyone's going to like what you have to say. You know, particularly if they belong to certain institutions, they're mm. not going to enjoy being told that there are inherent problems with the institutions because they take it as a personal affront. And so I try to separate the institutions from the people behind them as well as the behaviours from the person. And I've made mistakes at different times where I think, in you know, in certain instances I've gone very hard on certain people where I, I reflect and, and go, oh, I don't know if I helped there as much. But I, I find myself now at a place where it's like I'll always try to, as you said, invite a conversation 
to get towards progress. Like we're living in a time where there's so many broad social issues that are touching on all of us in this country that it's like we don't have time or space to be more divided. We need to sort of find the the common ground and the common human experiences and build from that, mm. particularly after COVID where so many of us were separated from the people that we love, just sort of in our homes or going through whatever struggles we were going through. And so I, I don't know, it's just been this whole journey where since 2015 I've just tried to speak out about what matters and initially it was born out of a sense of anger and injustice and then over time as I did the work to come to terms psychologically with the fact that, yes, Nikki was murdered, no, it was not my fault, the blame lies squarely with the perpetrator, no, it was not my family's fault, in spite of all the criticisms that we've received online and some of the trolling that we've been sent as a family, particularly at the kind of that's been directed at my parents in particular, has been really oh. hurtful to me as their child because it's just like I know who they are and they're not responsible for what was done to Nikki. And yet this kind of public perception that occurred and as well as, you know, coming from a fairly tight-knit South Asian Indian community, this look of like pity that my parents got initially really bugged me. Because it was mm. like, why do you feel like sympathize with them, but don't feel pity for them? Like they're not a they're not a basket case now, and it's been really kind of strange journey along the way. And it's a lot in many ways, Sarah. It will be a lifelong journey, right? Mm. Because that grief of losing someone before their time, I grieve now not for myself, I grieve for the missed opportunities for Nikki, mm. you know, that she recently would have had her 30th birthday. And I just think, wow, I remember back to my 30th birthday and being on the cusp of thinking, oh, my God, I'm 30, I haven't done anything with my life. Oh, my God, I'm also 30, I've still got ages or gone yeah. well. I've got time, yeah. I've got time. And I yeah. just think what she could have achieved, particularly because in the context of who we were as siblings, I was someone who I see a bright light, I get distracted and I go follow that one until, you know. <laughs> the shiny just, things. And then just meander around and eventually figure <laughs> it out. And there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to how we got there, but we get there in the end. And if we're not there, it's not the end yet. Whereas my sister had a sense of ambition and a quiet conviction, right? She would present as very shy, very quiet and almost meek at times and like she had no self-belief. And at times she suffered from crippling self-doubt. Yet the flip side of that was because she was a almost like a born performer, right? She's in mm. performing arts and she was performing from the age of like four. Didn't she found a Bollywood group? Or a Bollywood business? Yeah, a Bollywood and contemporary funk dance business. Yeah. That, that actually choreographed a video clip for and was planned and she was planning to go on tour with this group from Brooklyn called Naturally Seven, who for 10 years opened for Michael Bublé. <gasps> and she met them because at 14, she went up to them. So the first time they came on tour with Michael Bublé to Australia, they'd done like all around like different European cities. The first time they came to Australia and that with with Michael Bublé and they performed their Melbourne show at Rod Laver Arena afterwards because they were small then right but big enough that Michael Bublé took notice of them yeah so it was I'm like, like that's still pretty big <laughs> yes yeah, so like small like not like Bublé big but like big enough to open for him or certainly to have his vote of confidence so they were there and then afterwards they're like hey we're going to be out the front 
and you can come grab our CDs back when people still got CDs. And Nikki went up to them, this like precocious young teenager, just to like stuck out a hand and was like, hi, I'm Nikki. I'm a choreographer and I reckon that we could work together and really like hone in on, you know, these steps as part of your thing. And I reckon there's a whole market out there for you that is Whoa. untapped. And I was just like sitting there in the background and be like, who the fuck does this kid think she is? Like, <laughs> the like, balls on it. <laughs> yeah. And like, and they're like seven black dudes from Brooklyn. And uh, after Nikki's death, they were touring in their own right across Australia and they actually came over to my parents' house for dinner. And they're like seven black dudes who, and five of them came for dinner and they occupy space, right? Mm. Like in a room, they've got their <laughs> presence as well as their physical stature of being like six foot three and broad and obviously, you know, being performers, having commanding voices and stuff. So it was like this really fascinating thing of just like them being there in our home. But before that, all of that, Nikki just went up to these guys that she didn't know, introduced herself, and they were like, yeah, okay, we'll be in touch. And then what happened after Nikki's death was hearing from the leader of the group, Roger, about how my sister was to work with, right? And for anyone interested in their work, like one of their clips went viral where they were on the um, French subway in Paris singing Phil Collins in the air tonight. Um, oh, or, no or cappella. Yeah, that's, I think, that one of their most famous clips. But, yeah, she, like, just worked with them and it was really incredible hearing from him and a couple of others in the group about my sister as uh, a performer and as a choreographer in her work because, to me, she was like my little sister. She was the annoying little bratty, lovable kid and she always will be. But the other side of her was this kind of, like, professional, intelligent, ambitious woman. And so, for me, it's like... Yeah, my advocacy was born out of just wanting to give voice to that. And with all of the people whose stories I've shared, it's never about the circumstances in which they died because often people will say to me, I know your sister's story or I know XYZ person's story. And I just think, and I never correct people because I don't think this is what they mean, but what they're really saying, and I don't think they mean this, but what they're saying is, I know how your sister died. Not who she was. Who she was was 23 years of her life. The act of violence that took her was not even her own it was someone else's mm. choice right mm. and I think the stories of people are far more than the circumstances of their death and I think this is about everyone right mm. I think about this in terms of like I've just seen lately the ovarian cancer awareness and people say oh you know I know your aunt's story or I know this and it's like an aspect of it yeah like the, the most mm. traumatizing aspect of it but the and reality the end, the end yeah, yeah the reality is the is the life and I think we do well to share more of the stories of the lives of these people because when you look at the collective loss to society and what I grieve in Nikki is not my own loss. It's the loss of all of the opportunities for her. And I think mm. about that for everyone, whether it's through mm. violent means or any inadvertent early death, accidental cancer, violence from another person. It's just like, oh, shit, like they could have done anything they wanted if they had the time. Mm. And so it's really changed a lot for me. It's changed little stuff, Sarah, where I don't, my grandfather died recently, had an extended family member pass away just yesterday in fact I'm so and, sorry. oh no, I'm no. so and like, sorry it's totally I don't feel sad like I feel I feel a sense of loss like oh it's a shame but I feel I don't get sad in the same way because it's the fact that Nikki died early and the fact that she died under such horrible circumstances like real painful violent circumstances if someone lives a full life like my grandfather did and others who have passed away recently I just feel happy for them I'm like you got yeah. to do everything that life has to offer 
Yeah. And I miss them and I'm sad for, you know, them and all of that. But I'm not sad in the same way. It's different. You know, Mm. I'm like I feel gratitude more than anything. You know, if you get to live a full life, you've won. That is This is something that, I mean, you are such an amazing advocate and spokesperson for statistics and causes, and I really want to get into the role with L'Oreal and and the campaign you've done recently, but what I think you're also a wonderful advocate for that isn't spoken about as much just because it's obviously not the main focus is the fact that on this show we talk about joy, right, which is sometimes quite an artificial thing to talk about in a world where this kind of thing does happen, this level of trauma and violence can happen. And I often say to people, when you look back, all the dots often connect that led you to where you are today. And, you know, it's really easy to sort of uh, understand life's ups and downs when you think everything happens for a reason and you you win or you learn and, and everything shapes who you are. But in, in a situation like yours, it's not really appropriate to say everything happens for a reason because that doesn't apply when there's some of life's greatest tragedies and, and horrors. But yet you have become a person who can still feel gratitude, who can still front up to work, who, can, who has obviously had challenges and grief and mental health and it hasn't been rosy but the fact that you can articulate gratitude after going through something like that and then be an ambassador that helps others through their journey is quite remarkable so the big question for you that not many other people in the world can answer is when something like that does happen and that is not a yay there is no I'm sure for many years of your life joy was not even a question to have come through that now and be able to embrace speaking of things in a joyful way or find happiness in knowing that that will never go away. This is a lifelong journey, as you said. You still find joy day to day. How do you do that? How have you done that? Yeah, I I knew because, I've, I mean, I've listened to your podcast. I know that you talk about this with others. And so I was really nervous about being asked this because I genuinely, I struggle with this not because of my, I mean, in part because of, my sister's death and the work that I do and the the re-traumatizing effects of that. But also because I'm someone who lives with, you know, complex mental health conditions around depression, et cetera, and and medicated and at one point during the lowest parts of my life made an attempt, a suicide attempt, and thankfully I'm, you know, not in that space at all, want to live a very long time and uh, seemingly in my family have the genes to do it. Everyone lives for a very long time, so... (laughs) Sorry to the haters, but I'm sticking around. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, it's something that I grapple with daily. And it's I, I don't know where it comes from, but I grapple with it in the sense of like sometimes if I feel too happy, I almost feel guilty, right? And it's because of all of the, I think it's like an intergenerational thing where I look at like the sacrifices my grandparents my parents have made right and I'm like like there were years stretches of years where my dad didn't take a holiday and I swear I swear that I've inherited that where I'm like I could go on holiday or I could keep working because Mm. hard work is important and (laughs) it's weird how they're like do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life you will work (laughs) <laughs> right? You'll love what you do, but you will be And you'll working. be working. And you'll yeah. be working, right? And then, <laughs> and then all the joy that comes from that will be sucked out of it and then eventually, <laughs> eventually you'll be left with only work and nothing that you love. But yeah. no, I, I just sometimes I feel a sense of guilt around that. And for me, I derive joy from a lot of the littler things now. Like a lot of the – because I found that all of the bigger things, whether it's material purchases or other aspects of life, don't really – 
add up to the promise, right? Like I could go to the shops, buy something, and I'd feel happy for a while, but it will fade. Whereas if I have an amazing experience, like an incredible dinner with friends, or if I do something that I feel genuinely connected to someone, like I'm enjoying this conversation with you, right? Mm. This is oh, this lovely. will be a source of <laughs> a source of joy for me today is the opportunity that after a long time, we get to have a conversation. And I'm going to message mm. like five or six friends afterwards and be like, hey, I got to talk to Sarah Davidson. She's absolutely <laughs> lovely. Like oh. that, that, that yeah. sense of thing gives me joy, right? Yeah. Lately, and this is so pathetic, right, I downloaded the Tetris app to my phone and I'm currently <laughs> in the top five Australia-wide. Oh, my God, shut up. I love this so yeah. and much. And for, for, for a day last week when I was in Sydney <laughs> playing, I was number one, and I screenshot it. Oh my god! It. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, number rank in Sydney, number one. Can Glo- that be in your bio? Like that needs to go before activist, before Young Australian of the Year finalist, like all the other things you do. Yeah, pale in comparison. I agree to number one in Tetris. <laughs> Absolutely agree. Tetris is life because it like it's how everything fits in, right? Everything you got to find ways to get everything to fit in. And I don't know why I'm obsessed with it. It's such a like an arcade game. There's no graphics or anything. It's the single-mindedness. I think it's like the noise is blocked out. And I often do some of my best thinking while playing Tetris. It's like a kind go. of a, what are those things called? Those balls that people the Yeah, like stress it? balls. Stress balls. Yeah, it's something like I you know, everything fits together and then I go, "Aha, uh-huh, okay, this is how I'm going to solve XYZ problem in my life." And so, uh, yeah, what, what was the question again? I don't know. So- <laughs> How do I find joy? <laughs> okay. So I think one thing that I find that happens often is that I don't get to explore the true complexity and subtleties around this source for joy or fulfillment in life or the changing definition for people of success or what their life purpose is because unless there has been something like what you've experienced with Nikki – the subtleties don't apply. For some people, it is purely like do what makes you happy, don't do what doesn't make you happy. Like that's a very simple equation. But yeah. there's so much to explore here. Like the guilt is something people don't often talk about. Yeah, and I mean like I don't know. Like how do you how do you articulate that, right, by like by every like standard consumeristic measure? Like I got horse bit loafers and I'll wear them tonight. Like, you are yeah. fashion, by the I way. Got, I got horse bit loafers. My <laughs> my suits are made to measure. I wear a Cartier tank, right, to a recording a podcast. Like I don't need any. Like, I have everything. I have a roof over my head. My mum's freezer has enough food to feed like me for several lifetimes. Like I everything I could possibly need in this life at this point. I have most of it, right? Mm. Like I, I have most of my health with me. So the sense of like joy for me, like I, I've i almost reframed it as like I just want to find contentment. I want to find peace, right? And it's And that is so much harder. I reckon it's so easy to find ways to get joy because you can get immediate dopamine hits like gratuity that instant yeah. gratuity yeah and i'm guilty of spending way too much time on tiktok right and saving video after video to go back later and laugh again or you know learn stuff about the world whatever it is or just cute dogs whereas like if, oh if me God. and my you know if me and my bulldog habibi are out in the park you know or taking a walk and i get a soy flat white and a banana bread and we're going for a walk that is like Everything is good in the world. Everything is peaceful. Everything is good. Everything is right in the world. And I feel very lucky, right? I feel joy in things where like 
in my work when I'm traveling and I get to be in cabs with different drivers from or an Uber or whatever and different drivers usually from India or Pakistan or whatever and just hearing about their life and I just think I'm so lucky because my parents moved here at an age where I got to go to school here, I got to experience all of the benefits of an Australian education, which is not without its faults, but I got so many opportunities. And a lot of these people, particularly men, you know, and some of them around my age or a bit younger, are in very different circumstances, very, very different circumstances. And for me, it's like, well, my life could have been that. Like, there's a brown dude, I'm a brown dude. We're not that dissimilar. <laughs> like, we're not that. Yeah, but we're not that dissimilar. <laughs> So, I don't know, I just feel lucky. (laughs) I feel lucky. Like, honestly, I just feel lucky. Like, I feel lucky and I feel a sense of gratitude that I'm still around and that I'm going to keep being around. And joy comes in different ways where there are times where I feel content and happy and I'd rather chase that than just go, I need to do the next thing, I need to do the next thing. And, And I feel very, one thing I do feel happy about is that I'm at a point, Sarah, where if I drop dead tomorrow, I don't plan to, but if I drop dead, I would know that I've tried to do everything possible to, you know how they say, right, like when your parents are trying to like inculcate values into you, like give back more than you take, mm. et cetera. Mm. But like, I've tried to do that. I've mm. tr- like I've, I've actively tried to do that. So, you know, if I've failed, then at least I've given it a really good crack. So I just, I, I mean, I don't know. I, and I'm, I'm really sorry because it's not giving potentially like the best answer. No, this is the perfect answer, Tarang. That's the truth for me, right? Like that, that pursuit of like I've got to be happy and it's like it, it almost becomes too much, you know, like if you can find contentment. The pressure of happiness. Yeah. 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 My dad is like the most content guy, right? If I could be half as content as him. Like he's very, he doesn't chase material objects. He doesn't care what other people think. He's very comfortable in himself. And I think people can can tell that, you know, and as a consequence, he's very stylish, right? Because he's just like, he's just, he's just himself, right? You know, he's just himself. And like, yeah, stuff doesn't face him or bother him. I love this. Like, I think if you kind of pull anything out from the idea of CCA, like, yes, sometimes it's quite like, Happiness is a word we use often, but if I really wanted to force anything down anyone's throat, it's that we look at happiness as this like pressure of success and metrics and measurement. But really, most people from all walks of life, different experiences, different industries, different levels of trauma, different like whatever it is, it's that contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment, like those kind of words and emotions. That's the complexity of happiness and success. Those are the emotions, yeah. And those are the emotions that have like longer uh, and you'd know far better than I would but the studies on happiness confirm that people who feel that stuff are happier long term it transcends everything else yeah. yeah whereas like that pursuit of like short sharp almost like highs are like a drug right that dopamine hit and then there's the come down and I remember like there was a period where my advocacy did get national recognition and I was either one or shortlisted a few awards and they were in like sh- quite quick succession. And I remember telling my mom and she turned around to me and she said, better, which means son. She's like, better, are you happy? And it caused me to stop and think. What does that mean? Yeah, and and it, (laughs) it changed me because it was like, 
yeah, like, why am I doing this? Is this external validation or is this personal fulfillment? And it was this mm. journey where, like I was talking about earlier, that I realized that some of my advocacy is born out of my own healing. And I say no to more things now than I say yes to because I learned that the opposite was burning myself out. It was taking on too much. And it was often doing things for other people's fulfillment rather than my own. And so I found joy in a sense of creating boundaries, finding balance and and figuring out a way that feels authentic to myself as, as best as possible, I suppose. The other thing that you said that seems really quite counterintuitive in any conversation about happiness, but I think is actually the most important measure is you were mentioning, you know, if you if you drop dead tomorrow. And I think I read and refer back to that book, The Seven Regrets of the Dying, which was people being interviewed on their deathbed. So morbid, on its face, very anti-yay. Actually, the most meaningful measure for me of joy is am I meeting what those people defined as their biggest regrets? Like, am I living in a way that I wouldn't have those regrets at any point along the way? And it's it's morbid on its face. It seems like a weird thing to think about, but it actually means if you are living in a way that you don't trust that you will always have time, you won't have any regrets. Like, to me, that's contentment, you know? Like, that's a beautiful measure of having a good life. But having said that, you have turned your passion and as you mentioned it started from kind of your own journey and your own healing you've gone on to do some incredible work and I was reading one of your articles the other day about how you know women still in this day and age often have like I always have my keys in my fingers when I'm walking back to my car at night alone and 78% of us women experience harassment on the street even now So this campaign that you've become an ambassador for one of my favourite companies to work with for L'Oreal and their anti-street harassment campaign in April, and this is one of the things that you you have said yes to and and just been on a national tour with, what does that now mean to you? How how do these campaigns now, like this is your work now, it's gone from something that happened to you to something that you have turned into an amazing, amazing platform? Yeah, I mean, a great question. So it's it's really... It's scary, right, that like 78% of Australian women, and that was an Ipsos poll, still report experiences of street harassment. And when this campaign first started, I mean, it started globally. L'Oreal was involved in it before last year. But in Australia, it launched like last year, I think around like September 2022 when it first went live. And at the time, it was like this whole kind of national, really social media-driven awareness-raising campaign around anti-street harassment training, giving people, and there's this thing called the five Ds, and it was giving people a, a, like a, a way to be effective bystanders and safely intervene. And the, the key word there is safely, right? Mm. And so when we had conversations after the success of last year, we talked about the fact that this happens in person. So how do we, how do we create something where we go to people where they are and we came up with this idea of doing this national university tour which we've just wrapped up and we went to universities around the country where there was this just amazing panel that I had the the real pleasure and privilege to curate with you know people like our friend Maria and the till and Chanel Contos a, mm. an activist and campaigner as well as others April Elaine Horton Alira Potter we had Aurelia St. Clair. We had, uh, you know, Hannah Ferguson, the survivor and advocate um, Saxon Mullins was, was in Sydney as well. And so there was this whole kind of 
mix of women and non-binary people with uh, living experience of street harassment, as well as expertise, educating university students, right, on campuses. And in exchange, L'Oreal was very gracious to give them free products and, and, you know, they get their pics taken and be part of a movement. And it was really empowering, you know, a brand that is about women's empowerment for them to go into these spaces and actually create an inclusive environment where mm. Plan International Australia as their charity partner are doing this education and giving people avenues to safely intervene. For me, it was like ticking so many of the boxes of like big brands get a bad rap, right? And some of them for very valid reasons when you hear about some of their corporate practices, right? But here was an example of a brand going, we see that this is a problem. Our mission is women's empowerment. If 78%, effectively 8 in 10, right, women are experiencing this issue, are we just going to do something tokenistic or are we going to actually put our money where our mouth is and do something that backs it? And they did that ladder, right? They actually mm. were like, hey, here are things you can do right, mm. that will allow you to intervene in the moment but also work towards systemically changing the culture where this happens to women. And none of the onus is on, like, what is a woman wearing or why has she got, you know, so much makeup on or anything like that. It's like the woman or the non-binary person or the man, whoever it is, can do or say or be whoever they are. They can be their most authentic self and it is everyone else's job to respect their expression of self. And to me that was, like, so important. And so when they were like, would you like to be involved? I was like, absolutely, let's do it. And it was such a resounding success. And I think we're hoping to get 20,000 people trained up by the end of the year and expand into different settings, whether it's like music festivals or other festivals, and really make it something that becomes the kind of thing where L'Oreal can do something that changes the statistics. And I think they're really committed to doing that, you know, and I, and I really value that because we live in a society where, and this is why some of my work around sporting clubs I really enjoy, is because we have to go where people are. This idea that we're just going to get people to change their behavior in an echo chamber at a conference or an echo chamber of online chatter, that's really important. Don't get me wrong. And I participate in it actively because that's where I learn things. You know, it's where you learn the statistics, that's where you learn what's going on. But you can't change hearts and minds and behavior and actions or the mm. future just in one room at a summit. It has to infiltrate into the outside world. And that's where like these settings are so important, sport, cosmetics, retail, everywhere, you know, that people that, that people across Australia go. And it just made sense to do it at a university as well because people are starting to come of age. They're starting to figure out, have those early interactions. And if we embed it at that point, you know, and even if there's scope to do it in high schools in the future, it's just such important, crucial work. And I think there's a real opportunity there. And, I, and I'm really grateful that L'Oreal are a brand that wanted to back it because a lot of there are a lot of brands that have the ability to do something like that, but many of them are too scared. And I think it's part of what you said before, cancel culture, fear of doing something wrong, right? But, you know, there's that saying like the worst course of action is inaction. And that's where we are with street harassment that doing nothing is worse than trying to do the right thing to safely intervene. And so this is such an easy thing to do. And I'd love for all of your listeners, Sarah, to, to jump online at the L'Oreal stand-up website. And if you if you can pop the links in the show notes oh, to 100%. that, like get people doing that training online because I know how much you care about this issue as well. And we want a safer future. Like I, I just think of all the women I know 
who are, you know, our age, you included, who've had awful experiences either in their present or their past, you know, definitely in their past, who I don't want that to happen to young girls and young women now. I don't want them to go through the same shit. As well as that, I don't want young men in particular to think that's the only model available to them. Like I really want young men to think, hey, there are other ways to assert my masculinity, to show that I'm a man in this world where it's complicated and tricky and who knows what being a real man is anymore and I want to be able to feel a sense of my masculine identity in a way that doesn't diminish the experience of other people. And I'm very much a work in progress in that. So I don't come to anyone from a position of being like, I know everything. It's more like, hey, let's all learn together on the journey. And I think L'Oreal supporting this program uh, with Plan International Australia and the Stand Up Against Street Harassment Training is such a crucial part of all of that. I think they really are one of those brands that, you know, they're at their core, the, it's a product business that does incredible things with the products speak for themselves, but they are consistently doing campaigns like this that are well outside the necessary scope of what they do. But, you know, I've had the joy as well of and privilege of being associated with like the For Women in Science campaign that's giving uh, scholarships to female scientists that they're, it's the only scholarship in the world that they're allowed to use on childcare, which is a huge barrier yeah, to wow. like females' empowerment in science. Like it, it, they're covering so many areas that are not just – you know, it's a, I think the the phrase they're using is um, beauty that moves the world, which is, yeah, there's beauty as like this entry level to the the company, but they use that massive global impact for for other causes. That's what makes me really excited to be an ambassador when you get to do stuff like that. I love that there's there's something from that, right, around beauty that moves the world. I love that it's permission to like and do and care about certain things you know these things that are considered frivolous like beauty and fashion and aesthetic you know values sometimes people can look at that and go oh but they're just xyz it's just fashion or it's just this but that's an important part of our identities and our sense of belonging and often community right and confidence which is a huge thing and confidence yeah for years i used to like post on a menswear like style website right like and it developed a sense of community i found those pictures oh well <laughs> i didn't post many pictures so um but <laughs> i no i've got like one of my one of my best friends in sydney is um actually a guy i met through that that community right and it, i think it's so like powerful these spaces and and we can kind of create a sense of belonging and change from things that can sometimes feel frivolous and i will say as well one of the other reasons for l'oreal is that i absolutely love Ralph Lauren, the man. I'm just perennially obsessed with Ralph Lauren. (laughs) And their beauty products are all under the L'Oreal umbrella. And so when they approached me, I was like, yes, I love Ralph Lauren. Immediately, yes. Immediately, yes. Questions later, immediately, yes. No, no. I, I agree with what you say. And I think it's such a pertinent and astute observation by you, right? Like beauty that moves the world. There's ways to create change that exist within the systems that are around us. Like as much as everything we could just, you know, start all over again. Well, we can't. It's too late for that. So let's do Mm. good with what we have. And I think Mm. they're doing that. And my hope is that in coming months and years we can take it and be something that's that's even bigger and bolder and more ambitious. And um, there's certainly the appetite for it as well as the need to do it, right? There is a real kind of need in Australia for this when 78% of women experience street harassment. And Mm. the other part of that is if 78% of women are experiencing it, what percentage of other people are perpetrating it and how do we support them so they don't do it? Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. And I think this is one of the wonderful things about 
your platform and, and the audience that you have now is that you do use it to educate people about stats that would shock most Australians, I think, to even think we come close to that level of statistic. But also, <laughs> you also, as we mentioned, circling right back to the beginning, you got range. You also taught most of us that it's Ralph Lauren. Not Ralph Lauren. <laughs> Did you not know that? I knew. I only oh. knew because of working with L'Oreal. But when I saw it, I was like, oh that's going to break the internet. Oh, it's no, going to break the is, internet. If you take anything from this. <laughs> it's that. I think I'm obligated out of a sense of duty. Contractually. <laughs> no, it's, I don't. I actually, so those, those degrees on the wall are real. I don't think I'm contractually obligated to say this. I just say it because I, I feel such a deep connection. Do the training. That's what, that's the first bit. But. I will say Ralph Lauren. It is Ralph Lauren. It is not Ralph Lauren. And it is because that's not his real name. Uh, Ralph Lauren's real name is Ralph Lifshitz. And he's a- Stop it. I did not know that. Yeah, that's his real name. His real name is Ralph Lifshitz. And he was born in uh, the Bronx in New York in the 1930s. That's right. I did know that there was like a woman's name, Lauren. Yeah, and and his brother- his parents were Jewish migrants to the United States, and his brother said that they received so much discrimination for his name that one day he said, hey, I want to change my name to his two brothers. He has two brothers, and, and he's like, do you want to also change your name? And Ralph was, I think, hesitant at first and then went, no, nah, I'll, I'll go with you. We'll all just adopt Ralph Lauren. And that's where it that's where it started, right? They changed they changed their name. And so he's he's said on record, like when people are asked how do you pronounce it, he says like the girl's first name. Lauren. Yeah, Lauren. Yeah. So and they did it to sound more American. What I love, right, is that he because I love that he took the idea, right? He's a he's a Jewish migrant and he and yet people assume that like he's got this like old world country club kind of ancestry. Yeah. No. Migrant. Nah, he came from a very modest working class family who had this like amazing work ethic and this sense of like beauty and 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 there's a documentary about his life called Very Ralph and it's fantastic because it goes it goes to him talking about it. and one of the things he said and I this is what I loved right is that he goes people look at our clothes and they know immediately that it's Ralph Lauren but it's not the same every year. So it's finding the way to stay on brand and on theme but do something new every year, Mm. right? And I was like, that is a challenge, right, because you've got to stay within a parameter. And so sort of like the the mass respect that he's cultivated with different people from different backgrounds, you know, like hip-hop artists loving his stuff as well as like the well-to-do of English aristocracy. Like he's sort of, you know, you talk about range, Ralph Lauren's got range. Right? And, he got range. And, and Ralph Lauren's got brands as well, right? Where I'm getting uh, way off topic here. I'm just, I know. This is me talking about my love of like. Um, oh, I love it. It's me, me plugging stuff so eventually Ralph Lauren will send me like one thing. Yeah. Right? I'm going to make sure this gets in his ears just for your future career trajectory. <laughs> I just, I admire him so much. And, and particularly, you know, if you think about brands, like, Ralph Lauren is a brand making a statement around the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of brands didn't know what to do and Ralph mm. Lauren was like, hey, this is a basic fundamental human rights issue. We're going all out and we're going mm. to back it and give mm. money and donate. And, and I'm like, wow, that's cool. Like, And it's amazing how brands and other organisations struggle with knowing whether to do this. And to their credit, L'Oreal were like, this is a contentious issue, but this is affecting, you know, 78% of our market, right? 
let's minimum, let's talk about it. Let's go out there and actually be proactive. And I love that. I love when anyone is just like willing to go and put themselves out there. And for me, like that's how my advocacy journey started, right? No one knew who I was in that way, but my sister was murdered and I was like, damn well going to say something about it and I'm going to make something from it. So I think L'Oreal are doing some amazing work and it's great to be partnered with them. And it's great that you're involved across the brand, across everything. (laughs) Yeah, they really are such a wonderful brand. It is such a privilege, especially to be, yeah, alongside people like you. (laughs) If we can, Sarah, get you on one of our panels in the future, we would be indebted to you. I would love that. It would be a privilege. Well, Tarang, I've literally covered maybe 2% of what I wanted to talk to you about today because there's just so much... You, there's just so much we could talk about. You have such an incredible story. You are so eloquent and articulate in the things that you advocate for. We are so very lucky to have a voice like yours amplifying things that are really, really important that that don't honestly still probably don't get enough airtime, but you are doing a huge amount to change that and educate us all in ways that I think we all can learn and progress together. So I'm I'm so grateful for you, for your time, for how patient you were in making this happen. Of course. And no, we've got to do you. this again because, again, like I feel like I covered like chapter one of 100. We should do like a full series, just like Tarung chapter one, Tarung chapter two. I would be, honestly, <laughs> you just let me know when. I'd be honoured and thrilled. It's been a real joy. Uh, and as I said that, I was like, oh, cringe. But no, it's been, <laughs> it's actually been a real joy. It's been a treat and uh, definitely the highlight of my day today. And uh, for any me of your too. listeners that have stuck around this long, thank you for you know, <laughs> letting me go along your your walk or whatever you're doing, your trip in the car, wherever you listen to this podcast, because I'm just really grateful, right, that people actually care enough to listen to the things that I have to say because there's enough amazing content out there these days that uh, you could easily just avoid mine. So thank you so, so much, Sarah, and thank you to everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Have an amazing weekend. And I'll pop the links in the show notes to um, the campaign and all your platforms so people know where to find you. Amazing. Thanks, Sarah. So parts two, three and beyond of this chat are sure to come in the future. I really finished this one feeling like I barely asked anything on my list because there was just so much to cover. Tarang is so generous in his vulnerability and openness. And if you enjoyed listening along, please share the episode and shower him with neighborhood appreciation, tagging at Tarang Chawla to help keep spreading his amazing work. I'll include links in the show notes, as I mentioned, to some mental health and other important resources should any of you feel the need to reach out at any time never hesitate it is a strength not a weakness look after yourselves and each other and we will be back next week with more yays of our lives with Ange. and until then i hope you're seizing your yay